Hello, and welcome to Metier Class by Chanel. I'm Tyler Brulé. Over the past month, we've been exploring the craftsmanship, precision, artistry, and design philosophy of Chanel with its family of collaborators. The record producer and artist Pharrell Williams, creative consultant Lady Amanda Harlick, Chanel fashion president Bruno Pavlovsky, and the late, great Karl Lagerfeld himself. This program has journeyed through the story of an iconic brand, but has also tracked Chanel's fascination with and support for craftsmanship of its artisan partners. In this documentary, we will revisit the conversations we've enjoyed with our friends within Chanel to try and capture not just the spirit of the brand, but also the very essence of Métier Classe. We start with Chanel's fashion president, Bruno Pavlovsky, who I spoke to about the Maison's relationship with these small companies whose heritage they work so tirelessly to preserve. With the Métier d'Art, I think it's quite interesting to, to come back to the beginning of the story. It was in 2002, something like that, so more than 20 years ago, when we start uh, to work uh, on, on this Métier. In fact, it was a, a kind of gentleman agreement uh, we are working, uh, and you know, Mademoiselle Chanel herself uh, was working with some of them. I'm talking about Le Marier, I'm talking about Goussens, I'm talking about uh, Massaro. Carl obviously continued to work with them and to work with uh, some others. And, uh, you know, all these ateliers, which were around, uh, were key uh, for Chanel, for Mr. Lagerfeld, but were facing some uh, changes, being economic, uh, being succession planning or whatever, they were in fact quite fragile. And uh, we have had this kind of uh, gentleman agreement at that time that if something happened, Chanel will be here to support them and just to ensure that this atelier can continue to survive uh, and to develop. And that was the early beginning of uh, this uh, parafection uh, story. It was a gentleman agreement. So uh, no doubt that uh, we were sharing a vision, no doubt that we knew where we want to go, we don't know how, but the direction uh, was quite clear. And we have started uh, to work like that. But you know, the, one of the first ones I've been working with was uh, François Lesage at Lesage. And uh, again, there was nothing written. It was uh, a gentleman agreement. We were talking, you know, every month about what are the next steps, what are the challenges, what do we have to do, how do we do to recruit new uh, people, how do we train these people, all these kind of things. And step by step, we build what is uh, Le Sage today. And, and the same uh, happened with all of this uh, atelier. Today we have 26, uh, so it has been a long story. Uh, but they all contribute to what is Chanel today. So again, these people are, for sure, passionate. And what we are trying to do when we need to, to find new ones, because that happens uh, uh, on a regular basis, we need to find the same passion. We need to find the same uh, entrepreneurial motivation. And these people are here to create the condition uh, that this atelier continue to exist, not now, but in 10 years from now. Okay? And that's uh, what we are doing at Chanel all the time. We are working today, not for the tomorrow, but for 10, 15 years from now, being sure that the brand, and when I say the brand Chanel, it's also true for all the ateliers which are around us, uh, continue to, to exist. And uh, in this landscape, my job is to work on the 10, 10 to 15 years. It's not to work on today. 
So that's something which is key in terms of mindset. And that's something that I have not seen in other brands is a way to look at the future, but with a medium term, you know, five to 10 years, being sure that today we can take uh, the right decision for uh, the future. And that's something which is uh, quite uh, interesting to do uh, because you have to force yourself to make decisions. And I imagine one of the decisions must have been, what, five, four years ago, though announced recently that you'll bring some of these 26 under one roof in the 19th arrondissement. What was the precise thinking there? On one side, obviously, to to create a window and, and, and a platform, but do you see that this also will have other benefits as well than, of course, just geography and putting people under one roof? I think, no doubt, first of all, we want a window. We want a window to, to show everyone that uh, this métier, this atelier are quite important, okay? It was obvious but difficult to make it happen, to find a location where we can have everyone together. But when we brief first uh, the architect, uh, Rudy Ricciotti, the idea was to give us a, a, a feeling of uh, uh, craftsmanship. And that's the reason why he worked on this kind of um, fabric approach, uh, just to, uh, to show from outside that it's here we're talking about craftsmanship. That's something which is very important. On top of that, our expectation is because they will be all together under the same roof, not some of them, not all of them, uh, the idea is uh, to uh, open the doors and be sure that uh, all this atelier will work, will work more than ever together. Okay? And uh, when uh, uh, for Chanel, but not only for uh, Chanel, some of the pieces that we have seen uh, yesterday net, it's a combination of two, three, sometimes even four of this atelier working together. And uh, we want to be able to develop more and more this kind of uh, collaboration. One is uh, specialized on feathers, another on embroideries, another on I don't know what. And being able to work together, we create products that we even don't imagine today that they come to exist. And, and that's probably uh, the best way. These products are quite expensive because the value of craftsmanship that we find behind this product is uh, quite high, quite unique. And for me, that has no price. Finally, I just want to end on and, and coming back to the essence of, of craftsmanship, creation by, of course, by mind and by hand, uh, and how you see the, the path for this. On one side, you create a window, uh, and hopefully this brings in yeah, a next generation who, who wants to, to be part of this. Does this become a, a unique selling point for Europe? Because we're sitting in New York. Uh, this was a city that once had an incredible garment industry, still exists, um, but hugely depleted uh, because it went elsewhere. Um, is this something that uh, France, Europe Incorporated, needs to focus more on? For, for sure. Uh, I, I think that uh, it's quite difficult to find this level of craftsmanship. Uh, and uh, you need uh, to develop uh, uh, people, you know, and, and to, to, to educate and uh, to train uh, people year after year to be able to be uh, to reach this level uh, of uh, expertise. And um, today we see a lot of initiative in the tech, etc., but not that much in this, uh, when I say old, it's very respectful, huh? this uh, old uh, métier, which for me, continue to have a reason, more than a reason, 
will be part of our future. Lady Amanda Harlick has a long relationship with Chanel. She has worked as a creative consultant for the brand for over 20 years. I met her in Paris after Chanel's Riviera-themed haute couture show at the Grand Palais in January to talk about the inner workings of the Maison and the joy of good craft in fashion. I think fashion film has to change. I think we have to get now, you know, really using film in its most sensuous way. I mean, really, I'm thinking of that film, Roma. I'm thinking, come on, let's use film for what it can do with movement and light and actually show these clothes, you know, from the inside out, what they really feel like, how they move. I think that's exciting and it's not... You know, we're still very much a fashion film. There's a little thing that happens here, and you might have two girls playing a part, but it's not actually going into the clothes. And it doesn't have to be boring. That can be as most beautiful as watching, you know, water. I mean, that's mesmerising, and I don't think I'm seeing that in moving film that's specifically fashion. And it would be really exciting to do, you know? For sure. But is there a danger? I mean, of course, it's great to transmit the message on lots of flat screens like this, people get exposed to it, but also it's very hard to get truly interested in something. On a tiny screen, exactly. So how do, how do we do that? How do we get out there? I think it, it'd be wonderful for kids, for more people to experience it. So maybe it's about Chanel opening up, you know? I mean, already they're wonderful openings so people can go to Pontin, they can go and visit the artisans and actually see how it's doing and that, you know, how things are made. And, and I think that's really, I mean, not that it should be an educational thing, but I just think we're still a secret society. From just knowing a friend of mine who I followed all the way through college and mentored her, and now she's the most extraordinary weaver. She does couture uh, fabrics. And they are, yeah, they're working at the cutting edge, making velvet out of metal fibres. And, you know, it's just really exciting what they can do. I mean, what was interesting seeing, you know, I read the list, and then I understood how some of the things that Carl has invented in his head and then have been made. Do you remember collection, it was a couture collection that was, I kind of felt it was very zen, but everything was made of, of wood. So you had like wooden paillette and I mean, there was shavings of wood that were sewn on that were so beautiful. And it's, that is astounding something. Or when he used cement with the Corbusier collection, 18th century Corbusier, how would you think of making cement concrete paillette, which were extraordinarily beautiful? So this is where it's very young and I think must be really interesting if you are a math or physics or math or chemistry or, you know, if, even if you're fine arts. How do you excite young people though? Because also what you're saying, I mean, it's great to think fine arts, but you also don't need a degree to go and work in one of these ateliers as well. Like, I'm wondering also, are we trying to elevate the process of craftsmanship, which of course it's the, the end product's incredibly important, but yeah, you don't need a master's. I mean, you need, you need experience and you need an- you, in- do, you do, and you need a wonderful, inspiring teacher. But it's that very idea that you might do that. I think that's the, you know, it never occurred to me, and I wish it had, you know, that that there was the side of fashion of all the craftsmanship that goes into fashion is 
explorative, thrilling. It's a huge adventure. It is cutting edge. Did you feel there was enough of that when you were growing up? Or do you feel in an age of information now there's, there's, there's plenty of it? Or does it get compressed too much right now? We're sort of you know, so interested in the image, the moment, being there alive, that actually all the elements in between uh, are, are somehow erased. Yeah, I think everything now, there is an attention span that has suddenly kind of compressed. Compressed, yeah. yeah. And and also that you're immediately onto the next thing rather than understanding the slow process of becoming over sometimes months when an idea is first, you know, sent out there. Usually it starts with a set and then that will start, will go into fabric innovation and all of that and it takes a long time and yes that isn't something that you have you have no way of knowing that or even feeling that from watching you know a, a runway show online now that's interesting so you're saying that oftentimes it is it is the setting. that will often be the big trigger that would often be the you know the light bulb moment for the studio so villa south of france sweeping was, staircase i think it started with a swimming pool and then it was what kind of swimming pool is, it was Carl thinking? It was a swimming pool in a beautiful garden in the Mediterranean. A formal garden, but full of jasmine and roses and lemon trees and palm trees. And the cypress, I thought, was incredibly... I mean, that was very resonant of that perfect summer that you kind of yearn for right now, particularly. There is something, yeah, and I think the way it actually blurred in the set is really amazing. Obviously, the, this background that you had in, in, in this show, this and this, of course, we're in an audio world right now, but to describe being in the Grand Palais and this, this really this, this wraparound, a proper 360 set, which was remarkable. And then, as you said, this foreground of, of of course real shrubbery and and cypresses and all of these things and then of course fading back into this this wonderful set and i'm wondering in a way do you think it's also a little bit of a metaphor for the brand in many ways as well that chanel can be of course you know very much in the foreground very very present but then you actually see it's the depth of field which is Um, what we've been talking about is how you can go back and back and back and then you go from layer and layer of thought process of actually what's been made and then what's been refined and but and then the way carl uses references we will always sweep in the perfect chanel reference so that everything you know, everything makes sense. It's not, it's nothing is sort of random. And I think that's what makes his shows, his collection so memorable because it's so perfectly sewn into the very kind of cloth that is Chanel herself. So I asked Bruno about the codes of the brand, but Amanda, it'd be interesting to hear from you when you talk about those references, those elements. You know, are there three things, four things, seven things that have to come into the mix that suddenly... You just feel that that's right. Carl, I sometimes think he's like a composer and a conductor. So he composes the music and conducts it. And he knows every note, if those are the codes of Chanel. So your codes, you will always have camellias. You'll always have a little black dress. You will have a tailleur, but it will never look like an, another one, you know? In a sense, that's like looking at the, the spirit that you recognise as Chanel. And that spirit a bit has has those things always i don't can't remember 
a collection that hasn't had them. And if we're going to play on the really the 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 orchestra metaphor, where does Amanda Harlick fit into all of this? Amanda Harlick is a cheerleader. No, Amanda Harlick. Maybe to use the musical me- metaphor, I think I have a good ear. So, not that I will necessarily. I think everybody knows if something's out of tune, but maybe I can point out where a harmony is particularly moving or where one is too repetitive. They're little things, but little details matter to Carl and that makes the whole perfect. So that's my contribution, I think. On that point about detail, we now turn to one of Chanel's latest collaborators, the musician, record producer and entrepreneur Pharrell Williams. He's designing a capsule collection, which he revealed to me, as well as discussing how scribbling on his sneakers was the starting point of his relationship with the Maison. I started drawing on my shoes, and I drew the CC on one of the shoes, and I drew uh, Chanel Paris on the other. And I just, I was wearing them. My security said to me, you know, one day you're going to end up doing a collaboration with them. And I was like, never happened. Because, you know, it's a woman's brand, you know, and only here and there they would make accessories that were not necessarily for purchase, I think, but just to accompany the shows back then. And uh, it's like, never happened. He's like, I'll bet you. He's like, if if I win, you got to buy me one of those Chanel watches. And I said, okay, cool. And uh, I just blow it off. And then, I don't know, out of nowhere, I think... I was introduced to the brand officially, where they um, had me come and visit one of uh, Carl's little black jacket activations. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But I thought that was it. And then, like, it turned into coming to the parties, and it turned into campaigns, and then it evolved into being able to come in the room where they do the creating and, you know, and be a part of that conversation and then evolve to him doing a film and designing something for me to wear and me being able to look in the camera and say it was made for me. You know, things that never really happened before. And mind you, I'm African-American, right? This never meant anything to them. They just, they didn't see that. They just saw me as somebody that reps the brand because they knew that I would buy belts and anything that I could wear for myself, I'd wear it. So along with drawing on my own stuff, I also started just like incorporating things that I felt like, well, this is unisex to me, I'll wear it. And I did. And that's something that I did for years. And so when they started making things for me, I was like, okay, this is great, and I guess this is enough. But who knew I would wake up one day and they say, you know what, actually, come in and do a capsule collection, do what you want to do. And... Um, that's where we are now. And I pinch myself all the time. You talked about uh, attention to detail a bit earlier. Were you a detail freak from the age that you could rearrange things on the floor in your playpen? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that's part of your DNA and, and partly, you know, partly why you're here. I mean, you've been given a really, it's an interesting uh, mantle that you have uh, right now. Mm-hmm. And does that play into it? Yeah, 100%. I love details. I love using them. Like I said, everybody is into details. They just may not use, they just make shoes, a handful of them. 
but I love them. And I, I think that that definitely plays a part in it because I'm able to bring my own observations, my own instincts into my relationship with them. And they see those, those details, you know? I'm, I'm an Aries, so sometimes I'm, you know, I'm, I can be incredibly eclectic. I mean, I have on a whole lot of stuff right here, but I think my gift is to just make it all seem simple and effortless. Just a lot of details, you know? But that's my thing. That's what makes me feel comfortable. And I'm just happy, um, grateful is a better word, that they see that as a plus and say, you know, we could use that. Come join the fam and, you know, that's amazing because these types of opportunities have not been afforded to people outside of the fashion industry for very long. I'm just grateful. You're teasing us a little bit right now because I feel you're poking in a direction as to obviously things that you're working on at the moment. And you talked about the importance of the reveal. But if you think about what you're developing, designing, what we're going to see, there's an incredible array of, of talent in front of you to work with. I mean, globally unique. I mean, that's a, that is a massive set of, of crayons and paintbrushes and Play-Doh and everything to get going with. Yeah. Where, where do you start? With what was necessary. It's essentials. It's just essentials for like human beings to be able to walk in there and come out with things. Like so, I've for years, you know, over ten years, I've been wearing like their belts. They're for women, but the ones that I felt like I could wear, I would wear a sweater here and there. I'd wear. It. I mean, this is women's, but it fit me, so it was perfect for the show today. And that was my thing, just trying to bring a unisex spirit to it a more pronounced unisex spirit, because there's a lot of things that they've, they've I, I, listen, I didn't walk in there like Einstein, they've known, oh, a man could possibly pull this off, or this would be, a man can wear this, but it's never been deemed for men in that way. You know, here and there they would do a couple of things, but again, it was mostly for the show. But this, this just, I feel like this is like bringing humanity together. You know, when you say unisex, you're talking about mankind. You're not talking about a gender specifically. And that's a, there's a topic today, you know, and well needed, right? So I was happy to be able to do that, and I wanted to just do it with color as well. And so that's pretty much what it is. It's like unisex in color by Chanel and Pharrell. So weird to say my name in third person, but it's that's, right. that's what it is. It's Chanel Pharrell. That's the, that's the capsule. Could you look around the landscape in yeah in the U.S. and and find something like this? And this is not about bigging up Chanel either. But when you talk about all of the artisans working here, you know, all of the various ateliers supporting it, do you think this is a bit of a, of a one-off? And if you jumped in your car and scanned America, do you think you could find a, a brand like this? There's not another brand like this. It's not possible. And then you think about, to your point, like the, the collections, the guild of artists, artisans that are under the same entire house, like it's like, who has that? You know, the Chanel Maison is arguably a guild. It's an artist guild. And that'd be hard to replicate. Finally, we hear from Chanel's late art director, Carl Lagerfeld, in his last interview. I spoke to him at the Mercer Hotel in New York, where he was on outstanding form, as he gave his usual wit and wisdom on topics like the mystery of a brand, Europe, the very essence of Chanel, and of course, his beloved cat, Choupette.
when we look at what's happened today, and maybe it would be interesting to maybe rewind when you started moving into ateliers, when you started to work with artisans in the beginning, is it a more difficult time? Because on one side, you, it's interesting, Chanel is obviously invested in these companies, so you have these people on your doorstep, or is it complicated to go and find the hand that you need today? No, not for me. I'm lucky because I can do whatever I want. I just say I want this and I get it in the best way, in the best quality. So I don't know how it works for others. But Let's I'm, pretend we're not Karl Lagerfeld for a second. I'm a young designer starting out. Do you think it would you have these tools that you might have had in the 1970s at your fingertips or not in the same way? Yeah, but you know, in the 70s, I, I was a freelance designer for Chloe and things like this. I'm still freelance, but I'm running two very in terms of creativity, because I'm not running business, I hate business. I'm not a businessman, because there are people who are very good on that, and I may be a little better on designing. So Chanel, what is very established, in, and Fendi, with every matter of established too. Lagerfeld is still another story, but it's doing pretty well too now. So the whole uh, thing, together, is very stimulating for me, because I hate the idea of doing only one thing. One thing inspires another. If I would be isolated in kind of ivory tower at Chanel, I don't think it would work. That may be, but I think people are fascinated to see that photographer, obviously designing multiple collections, doing one-offs here and there. Has anyone sort of mapped the mind of Karl Lagerfeld to say how you can do all of these multiple streams? Himself. I do everything myself. Huh? Oh, no, for sure. But I'm wondering, how are you able to compartmentalize? I mean, when you think about creativity... You know, I don't, you can comment on that if you don't think about it. Huh? I just go ahead. Hmm? Problem by problem, step by step, collection by collection. And it's a non-stop business. But I'm enchanted, and I must say, I never liked it as much as I do today. The work conditions were never as good. So... If there's one person who cannot complain in what's going on in the world or in his world or in his business, it's me. Which is a luxury in itself today. Yes, but we are in the luxury business, darling. <laughs> we are indeed. Do you think that there's too little mystery in the world? Because I think if people think about Chanel, they think about creations past, they might think about accessories, etc. But part of it is a fantasy in your head. And as you said, if you're on Instagram the whole time, telling people what you're doing every second of the day, the mystery goes away. There is none. No, no, exactly. No, because what is interesting is what you imagine. It's not always interesting with what you see. I totally agree with you. That is the way I do things as far as I'm concerned, because I'm not telling myself, oh, you want to be mysterious, but I want to be not too well known in details. You're a keen observer of popular culture. How did we end up here, Carl? How did we get to this place that people need to feel that they have to broadcast what they're doing every second of the day, whether they're a brand or whether they're an individual? This is a question I don't know what to say, because for me, it's like a kind of mental sickness from you to me. I don't think it's normal. I would even say worse. Some of them are not that interesting. Who cares what they do? It's horrible to say that, but... It's true. I'm sorry. So I prefer to be silent so they cannot judge what I think and what I say and what I do because, in fact, they don't know. Yeah, and maybe this is a great tragedy of our time. And, and also, you know, I don't have the time. Huh? A day is very short. I sleep very well. I have to take care of Choupette, my famous cat, and all that. And I sketch all everything myself. That takes a lot of time, you know, huh? because, in fact, 
I wanted to become an illustrator and a portrait artist and a cartoon artist. I'm still doing cartoons in Germany in the Frankfurt Allgemeine once a month. Very hard and tough political cartoons. But I like the physical thing of sketching. So I look for ideas and so on. And I don't look at too many other things because I even said to my godchildren, don't watch too many things on your iPad because you kill your own imagination because you see everything made and sometimes in second-rate quality. So imagination is something you have to cultivate. And I personally close my eyes and I can stay for hours and make my own movies. I live in my own world and I use what happens there in my work. I want to talk about, and this is maybe, um, it's a bit of a rewind, but the... I guess inspiration, as you said, I don't know if it was the vision to be doing cartoons for one of the majors I took in, in Germany when you were young and make this a career versus the trajectory that took you to where we are this evening or this afternoon. What was it that actually sort of led you into the world of, of atelier and, and, and fashion in particular? Was there a turning point? No, an accident. I won a contest and it started all with that, you know. A contest when I was in school, I never went to fashion school or nothing, you know. I didn't finish high school, nothing. I'm the most improvised person in the world. So. But if you know how to improvise yourself, it may work. Yes, that's very true, actually. It would be interesting if actually more people recognized that. Yes, huh? but, you know, I believed in myself, but I also make the effort that this trust could be a reality. I'm not sure if this takes us to Switzerland or to Germany, but something comes to mind because... The Germans, okay, yes, everyone likes to be a doctor, hair doctor this, hair doctor that, but at the same time... I'm a professor because I was once a teacher in Vienna for two years. I hate that. In Vienna, I never go there when they said to me, Herr Professor, it's a grotesque. But you have this extreme in Austria, in Switzerland, in Germany, of the doctor. And then on the other side, you have the apprentice people who learn how to do things with their hands and make things, whether it's a carpenter, you still have this, yeah, but this in the German-speaking world. level, you know. Huh? I'm the one who tells them what to do, but of they course. have to do it. It's not the same thing. Huh? I personally know, how to, know, know nothing. I'm totally stupid to do things myself, but I now uh, know exactly how they should be done. Huh? I don't even know how to make a bed or, or, or cook an egg. Huh? Are we too much in a unilateral world right now that... Everyone feels that it has to be sort of one trend. I mean, you notice car design. Not that we want to talk about cars and you don't drive, and that's fine. But you notice that there is these dominant influences, I think, much more than we, than we would have seen, yeah, in industrial design of the 1960s, whether it's fashion Yes, but also, 70s. you know, there are so much more images, diffusion of possibilities on the net, on TV, on, uh, on everything. The communication was not the same in the 60s. Huh? Maybe you're too young to remember. Not quite, but... Um, <laughs> that was another planet, my dear. It was another planet. But here's what's interesting. We've got so, we're bombarded with so many images, and yet vehicles, aircraft, even furniture, everything starts to look very, very similar. You would say almost sort of there's five Instagram filters in the world. <laughs> And everything starts to live around those five filters. But, you know, if you have a second look, there's still quite a lot of good creativity. Yeah? For sure. You must have, have, have a second look, huh? huh? And not say that everything is okay and we need nothing else. There's a lot of uh, good stuff around. Is that diminished attention spans, do you think? that people? Yes, there's also laziness and a kind of intellectual laziness. 
you know, they are there with their little thing. And, mm. hmm? I don't think they make always the biggest uh, intellectual effort. But if you don't make an effort, you we are lost. Again, we come back to another challenge of our time. What comes first? And I'm going to use the B word for brand. You have Chanel and you have many other maisons. Not so many. Not so many. But I'm, I'm Even if I do sometimes collaborations, but this, I think that there's something very right, very modern and very stimulating because I like to know what's going on in other places. But who's driving the code? Is it because you've been at Chanel, obviously, for such a period that you have created the code? Or is there still something that goes back to Gabrielle and everything that also lives in your mind in terms of... Maybe, uh, let's say, I helped to make it go back to her because it was quite far away. And... And when you look at other companies that bring on a creative director... I'm short-sighted. That's okay. But if you look at other companies, well, they bring on a creative director and suddenly the code changes completely. Everything changes. The shop designs change. Yeah, the good. photography changes. This is good? Yes, I like change, yes. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Tradition may be okay, but you have to be careful not to become a bore. No. And when designers start to do retrospectives and talk about their past and look at their old dress, it's very dangerous, the beginning of the end. Uh-huh. There's another line I love, an old uh, Jewish line in Germany called, no credit on the past. I repeat that to myself every morning. Have you told Choupette this line as well? She's not interested. No. She's only interested in her beauty and to seduce other people. Okay. Hmm. But there must be sort of an intellectual rigor or not not interested. It would sound great if I say yes, but I think it's another level. Okay. Because I, I remember meeting Chupette very briefly behind the bookstore. But Oh, you can come downstairs and see her. Okay. That would be... She travels with me. I don't travel alone. Huh? No, of course. No, huh? She loves private jets. <laughs> what cat wouldn't? I don't know so many other cats traveling that way with their own personal maid. Why this love affair is so late in life? I mean, there's always been animals around. Yes, yes, and the country had dogs. Yes, it's, it's a very strange story. You know, my great friend Ingrid Sishi and Sandy Brown, they had a cat called Cassidy. And I thought they just did too much. They fussed around with this Cassidy. I remember one morning in Biarritz, Cassidy had disappeared and... Uh, it was a drama. Everything was just the house, the attic, the basement, the park, everything. And then Sandy everyone. came back to the bedroom, fall on her armchair and cried. And suddenly out of the little piece of furniture next to the armchair came Cassidy. Then one day a friend came to my house and said, I have this cat that's only three months old. I've been leaving for two weeks. Can your maid take care of it? And when he came back to the I said, I'm sorry, the cat is mine. I fall in love with her. And Chupette is an horrible name, but, you know, in those places where they are brought up, they give names before you, they sell the cats. Uh, mm. And her name was Chupette. When you talk to her, Chupette, she's not answering. She answers only when you say Chupinette. Very strange. I think it's the sound of the I Chupinette. I mean, it's grotesque. I became grotesque, but I'm enchanted to be grotesque. <laughs> And that concludes this series, Metier Class by Chanel. You can listen to the rest of the series at monocle.com or on your favorite audio source, including chanel.com. This series was coordinated by Daphne Hazard. Today's show was produced by Holly Fisher, and I'm Tyler Brulé. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.